Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That's Rain on the Scarecrow by John Mellencamp, lamenting the plight of the American family farmer. It's a crisis that spawned the original farm aid in 1985. But oh, how times have changed. Food prices have since soared. The Chinese want our chickens, hogs, and corn, and investors want a real asset to hedge against inflation. More food crops are being diverted to the production of biofuels. All told, U.S. farmland prices have increased more than 17% a year over the past decade of economic uncertainty, with not a single down year. So should you be investing in farmland? We ask a real-life farmer, a tractor-loving investment banker, and a grocery buyer. That and everything you ever wanted to know about heirloom Haas avocados on full disclosure. But first, the news. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for joining us. First things first, blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. <laughs> joining us today are three <laughs> agricultural types, agriculture gurus to talk about the unprecedented boom in farming as an asset class, farmland as an asset class. Uh, Megan Jones is a buyer for Elwood Thompson's here in Richmond, Virginia. She deals with the local vore movement intensely and knows uh, all things customer demand and farmer grievances. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kevin Engel, farmer Kevin, joins us. He represents Engel Family Farms, which had swaths of land here in Virginia, corn, soybean, uh, you have exes that live in Texas, I take it? Uh, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Thank not you. Yet. Thank you for, for schlepping out here. Yeah. And uh, Craig Sheely, uh, he is going to be an ongoing character on this program. We call him the accidental banker because he, he ended up investment banking, even though he grew up on a barn uh, in, in a South Carolina farm. Were you born in a barn? I wasn't born in a barn, thankfully, but uh, close to it, next door. So, yeah, you, you, you graduated from Princeton and ended up at Microsoft. And then uh, uh, fast forward, you become a, a Virginia biofuel mogul, and that didn't go too well. But you learned a lot, and now you're an investment banker, and you're yeah. trying to rethink your life. Craig Shealy, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> trying to rethink my life. Yeah, I'm definitely rethinking being here this morning. <laughs> oh, boy. No, no, no. This is this is a great conversation. No. And thank thank all of you for, for putting up with me. This is not my uh, area of expertise. I do have Garth Brooks rolling around in my head constantly, right? Um, friends in lonely places and exes live in Texas. Sorry for, for, for dispensing all that. But let's talk about farmland. Uh, I did uh, share with you guys a white paper put out by the hedge fund Grantham Mayo Otterloo that uh, unbelievably said, don't look now, but which asset class in the United States has had a 17% return a year over the past 10 years, no down years, and now has a price earnings ratio of about 35, which is the twice twice the United States stock market value. It turns mm -hmm. out to be farmland. Right. Farmland. Uh, what's going on, Craig? There are a lot of factors that are that are playing into that. But um, one of the things that was first, I know we'll talk about more later, but you had this huge disconnect between uh, carbohydrates and hydrocarbons, which really became exacerbated around 2005, 2006 time food, frame. Food versus fuel, effectively, it, right? It is, but I think more importantly to think about it is you had what at the time was really cheap sources of carbohydrates, i.e. starch and corn, which could be converted into a liquid fuel equivalent otherwise known as ethanol. And so as crude oil and therefore gasoline spiked in price, you had a really an arbitrage opportunity which which the market had to close, right? And then that got exacerbated by the the regulatory move with the renewable fuel standard. 
And then it, all these things have continued to come into play with with the growth and demand coming out of a lot of emerging markets, China, India. Et so let's let's unpack that for a minute, right? We have emerge. This is a decade of emerging markets. You have the BRICS: Brazil, Russia, India, and China really stepping forward. A record number of Chinese. Uh, people coming to the middle class, moving in from the countryside, demanding meat, mm-hmm. demanding uh, products that they haven't had before. And so Correct. there's a bigger pull on some of the agricultural commodities, the grains that we produce here in the United States. And at the same time, um, you have this food versus fuel calculation. Crude oil goes from around $20 a barrel to, uh, I think in 2008, peaked above $140 per barrel. And so yeah, farmers, farmers are being incented to divert a portion of their crop away to fuel. Right, we, we talked about yeah. you know the great the great dream of ethanol, cellulosic ethanol, corn based ethanol. Yep. Um, um, Kevin, farmer Kevin, how did that how did that play out real time for you? Here you are, you have a family business. It goes back to Illinois. Um, you have an agricultural heritage, and suddenly you guys are kind of sitting on the catbird seat when oil prices spike. Well, it it helped us expand our business considerably. I mean, and we, by doing that, we we here in Virginia we used land that had previously been laying rather idle, for lack of a better word, and started converting it to cropland and, mm-hmm. and uh, producing commodities and and uh, giving a, uh, a use for that land for the people that owned it. And all of a sudden, people that just owned land really didn't farm, uh, but they all of a sudden they could rent it to us and we could generate a commodity off of it that was had value and in return pay value back to them. And uh, uh, our, our business expanded, and we did a lot of good for a lot of these folks as well, I think. So how has the thinking changed? Say from 10 years ago, you're thinking, uh, my livelihood is chiefly the yield I can get off this land, the, the crops getting more out of as much of I, as much as I have right now, considering the labor intensity and resource intensity. Now you look at it also as an, a, as an asset class, right? There's underlying value. There are potentially developers looking at it. We're, we're hearing about institutional investors that want to buy farmland. Suddenly you have many more customers and constituents. You have many more customers. And you also, uh, like like you said, have uh, other investors looking at land and you, you start to come up with ways to partner with them to where they can buy the land. You provide the, 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 the function of producing this, these commodities and uh, creating a revenue stream that is somewhat consistent from year to year. And uh, that helps create these increase in values that you spoke of earlier. Now, Megan Jones, what are you seeing at the ground level? Uh, because at the same time, food prices have gone up, right? They say that inflation has been non-existent in the United States. Economists say it on a headline level over the past 30, 35 years. And yet you really do sense that this has been the end of cheap food. Um, your store deals a lot with, with, with certain specialty and boutique products and things that are sourced locally. You're not necessarily buying them from the cheapest producers. Uh, your customers have preferences for certain organic produce, certain locally sourced produce, but all things considered, prices have soared at the same time. And so what is the kind of pushback you're getting from both suppliers and customers? Well, you know, definitely, you know, you're you're right on with the kind of you know, varieties that we offer. Where we're getting around that is more focusing on a little bit more heirloom and specialty varieties um, that sort of match that increase in price. The customers, when they come to Elwood Thompson's, they definitely, you know, expect to see a little bit higher prices because we work directly with the farmers. Most of the produce is going to be organic or special varieties. 
So, you know, the demand is is basically focusing on that. As far as the farms, you know, offering what we're doing to sort of get around that as well is we've started a program where we're working at the beginning of the season with farmers and saying, hey, will you grow these certain varieties for me? And basically we'll buy that crop at the end of the season. So it brings the price down and we can pass that on to the customer as well. Now, has at any point like in dealing with farmers, has a light bulb gone off above your head over the past several years? Like, shoot, I got to get back into farmland. (laughs) Does it suddenly seem more lucrative? Because the story we always hear and going back to John Mellencamp performing at, at Farm Aid in 1985 is that farmers are a poor lot and their livelihood is kind of a relic back to the agrarian era. But in fact, now they have different ways of looking at their fundamental asset class. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, you're you're seeing a little bit of a trend in the opposite direction. You're seeing a lot of the young professionals who, yeah. you know, have a you know exactly. a lot of education behind them going back to the farm, yeah. and they are focusing more on smaller farms rather than the you know the larger farms and just starting there and working their way to their goals. But yeah, a lot of young professionals are going back to the land. I'd like to speak to Farmer that. Farmer Kevin, please. Good. Um, I'm very blessed that I have three children and uh, uh, two sons and a, and a daughter, and all three of them are very interested in our business and very much a part of it and work hard in it every day to promote it and make it continue to expand and uh, uh, be successful. You know, that lower class you were talking about earlier, who wants to be part of that? About eight or nine years ago, I think, uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch interviewed a lot of farmers from around the state, and uh, uh, we were one of them. And we were right at that point, Craig, where yeah. things were – you could really see where things were getting ready to take off yeah. and do well. And uh, we were very excited about it. My kids were excited about it. We were ready to roll. We were ready to get on that mm-hmm. that train and go. And some of the other interviews that they did, people were so used to – talking about how woe is me, you know, and when you would listen to those interviews, you were kind of at the point where, gosh, what children would want to do what dad did if he went and what grandpa did if they had to go through all that pain and misery? Right. We want to be productive just like everybody else does. So, Mm -hmm. Craig, what changed either on the supply side? Was it really, was it, was the fundamental driver fuel prices? That suddenly make farming lucrative? Was it uh, the fact that interest rates were low? I mean, we'll talk yeah. about that later, that you want a, an inflation hedge or suddenly international investors. Mm-hmm. What was the one thing that made all of this suddenly look so appealing? Well, it, I mean, at the end of the day, all these are commodity markets, whether you're talking about even organic vegetables that, that Megan is buying or whether you're talking about uh, grains that, that Kevin is producing. They're all, they're all commodities, right? And so really it comes down to demand. Um, and you know some of the things we touched on earlier, big drivers of demand, uh, obviously fuel being a big driver and being able to convert at least a portion of various crops, primarily corn in this country, uh, to to liquid fuel, which was in, in very tight supply and you know continues to be. But also global demand for food commodities. Um, you know whether you're talking about uh, specialty tofu, uh, soybeans like what Kevin and some of his compadres produce, uh, all the way to um, Haas avocados. Man, that's what I got to produce. Haas avocados, <laughs> absolutely. My onions. babies go through tons of those. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a friend who who makes a great living uh, producing onions, uh, especially onions in uh, in New York. Now hold that yeah. thought because I'm going to hold all your hands to the fire and to tell me how I can transition into profitable cash cropping. Uh, stay with. 
with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking farming and the fat of the land. Support for this program was provided by The Martin Agency. Headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, The Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for joining us. We are talking all things food and farming and agriculture today, and we're joined by a banker, a farmer, and a buyer. Like an interesting confluence of perspectives to talk about suddenly the boom in farm prices and the new realities facing um, actually the global food supply. And to that end, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the U.N., the world's population, which is estimated to have hit 7 billion last year, is projected to increase to about 10 billion by 2050. And world food production needs to increase by 60 percent in order to meet the increasing demand. And moreover... Most production increases will need to occur on the one and a half billion hectares of arable land and permanent crops that are already being cultivated. So, Farmer Kevin, are you feeling this pressure out there that you need to do more with with what you have? Are you out there voraciously buying more land in anticipation of kind of a big pull from China and these other big, hungry, developing economies? Well, I think technology helps us keep ratcheting up every year what what we're um, able to produce. And that is going to help meet demand to some degree. And I also think that there's still a lot of land out there that is not being used efficiently and effectively that can be. And when the value for doing that is there, it will happen. Have people been knocking on your door looking to buy land? I mean, this is an illiquid asset. It's not like you can just call your broker and buy 100 shares. Actually, I'm going around to people that own land asking them if they want to sell land to me. What kind of position are they in? Are they are they older? Are older. they looking to transition? Yes. Or they've inherited a piece of property that they really don't have the, the knowledge base or the So time you are to, you are you are bullish. You tend to subscribe to this idea that there's yes. gonna be pent up demand and a disconnect. So how does it work for a person who wants a complete primer on investing in farmland? Just on capital appreciation alone, we see 17.5% return. And over the course of a decade, that turns a $100,000 investment into north of a half a million dollars. Mm. How do you look at it? Is there capital appreciation and income, for example, um, subdividing the land, getting rents from farmers, uh, the cash crops that you sell? Um, what, are, what are some other streams of income? Well, I think uh, the majority of the people that are investing in this uh, land in areas that is solely agriculture is looking at that return from agriculture production. And here in Virginia, there are a lot of other potential mm-hmm. options that come about and in other areas of the country as well. Uh, when you have populations that build out and come closer to your land, there's developmental potential. So when you're looking at an investment, what is the potential? Like you're looking at it from an Income and capital appreciation perspective, you're looking at how efficiently the yields – I mean, it's it's interesting. It's like a play on the word yield, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Yield from the soil and yield on your investment if exactly. you can eke out more from what, what you, you already you're have. You're looking at both, and you're certainly looking at uh, its potential for irrigation as well because that allows you to be more consistent in your income yield from year to year when you can uh, have a water source to – make sure the crops will grow Yeah, because times like uh, this year, we had dry spells in certain areas of the state that uh, harmed the corn crop considerably. 
Greg Sheely? Well, and that's particularly acute here in Kevin's territory here in Virginia because our soil, our topsoil is not deep enough to retain moisture like the Midwest. So having irrigation is a big deal for pretty much any type of crop in this region. The other thing I was going to say, I just want to, Kevin's very modest. I want to brag on him a little bit. He He's a pretty smart, um, not pretty, but extremely smart value, what I would call a value investor in farmland because he's figured out how to remediate land that has actually fallen out of probably what would be classified as arable, um, going in and, and finding creative, low-cost ways to um, re- essentially remediate farmland. All right. Rehabilitate land that's kind of been left for yeah, dead. Exactly. Yeah. So I know, I know he's done a lot of that uh, where he's been able to take land, which is, you know, if you were to send the extension service in to test it, they would say, don't grow anything on here. And then, you know, a year later, two years later, he's producing uh, profitable, you know, corn, soybeans, and, you know, winter grains off of it. Do you have specific rain gods that you pray to? Are there <laughs> different <laughs> than the rest of us? Not, not rain gods, but I do have a god I pray to. <laughs> <Right. I'm> like, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Megan, <laughs> one specific one. Right. <laughs> uh, Megan, what about water, right? Because at the same time, we see parallel in the headlines that uh, one, of the, one of the major bread baskets of the United States and California, where we get many of our fruits and vegetables, is, is hugely imperiled by this drought. And there's a disconnect there where it's super easy to get water for super intensive crops like almonds and pistachios. And suddenly the entire state must ration water and they're thinking about desalinization in Los Angeles. Does that not worry you in terms of, you know, when we talk about locally Virginia and these particular soil that doesn't retain water as much as it should, doesn't it throw a, a kind of a wrench into the entire equation of investing in agriculture? Um, I would say so, but I also think that you're going to, because of this, you're going to start seeing a trend in buying more local. And and certainly there are certain things we can't grow here, such as those things, mm-hmm. um, or maybe not as good. Um, but you're definitely going to start seeing people, you know, instead of buying the, the apples from the West Coast um, and other crops from the West Coast that, you know, need that water, you're going to start seeing people buy more locally because they know, you know, they can get it and, you know, the water isn't as scarce. And I also think that we're going to start seeing a lot more people growing, you know, their food in their backyards, you know, like they yeah. used to mid-century and before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, everybody had that. a little garden, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. It's amazing so. what you can grow in a small spot. That's right. You know, you That's right. A, when you have the knowledge and the desire to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's on a patio. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's in a small, you know, plot of a backyard. Right. But people are growing it, and you're starting to see that trend now. And things like this water crisis going on in California are just fueling that trend mm-hmm. for local. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking all things farming and agriculture and living and investing off the fat of the land today. Joining us, an investment banker who grew up on a tractor in South Carolina. <laughs> That's right. Who uh, knows the asset class really well. Uh, a major farmer in Virginia and a buyer for uh, beloved local uh, grocery that deals with a lot of uh, local farmers and 100-mile radius. And so all of them bring a a different perspective to, I think, a really multifaceted story. Craig, earlier you were talking about um, China's demands and how Mm -hmm. the uh, population shift there is suddenly changing everything in the United States. And now maybe that's the one thing that changed so much that suddenly, you know, the the old normal for oil was betrayed in a band from $15 to $30. And now we're talking $50 to $150. And so is this just a race for any and every commodity, be it copper, be it beef? 
I mean, there's certainly a, an aspect to that. I mean, if you look at the population, that the China story is not so much one of just raw population as much as it is a shift in demographics. You know, that country has grown a middle class that now exceeds the size of, of the entire United States in terms of population. So those folks rightly want to drive a car. They want to you know, have a comfortable home. They want to eat more high-quality protein. And so all those things require these commodities that we're talking about, uh, either directly or indirectly. And the other issue that is at play is the reality is that the, the Chinese farming infrastructure has not been able to keep up with productivity growth of folks like Kevin here in the United States. So, you know, their average yield per acre of corn, just for example, is about 90 bushels per acre equivalent. Um, and it's been pretty much flat for the last 30 years. Whereas here in the United States, we're way, you know, what, yeah. Kevin, pushing into 200, 200 plus. Yeah. Right, yeah, and plus, yeah. so if you sort of roll the clock back, you know, twenty, thirty years, depending on where you want to start the the graph, you've got sort of a flat line in China, and you've you know doubled production capabilities uh, here in the United States, mm-hmm. and folks like Kevin have been able to do that extremely efficiently, and and yet double the production. So so they've got huge demand, but they're not they're not haven't been able to really grow their domestic production. Yeah, the the Chinese are buyers of size of all agricultural yep. commodities. In fact, what do they buy? Do they buy Smithfield Farms here in the they United did. States? Yeah, they did. At the big hog farmer. Correct. Uh, do any of you? I mean, jump on Megan. Is there a national security issue here? And you talk about if you think that future wars are going to be fought over water and commodities, are we okay with the Chinese? Maybe they're buying United States expertise by buying farms and technology and capability here as opposed to learning it from scratch over the next 30 years. Are you are you okay with that? <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, you know, I think that it's really important for us to take care of ourselves. And when we, you know, form an alliance with other countries where we are basically just handing out the kind of resources that we have. I mean, this is this is all we have. But I guess in the long run, I am okay with it. It's just water is a huge issue. And, you know, it's really, really important for us to be very protective over those resources. Now, are there adjacent ways to invest in this, Kevin? Uh, maybe in drip irrigation or some of the technologies that are enabling you to be the smarter farmer of scale? Oh, sure. Sure. So, if yep. you were a layman out there, how would you be? How would you be doing this? I mean, everybody can always go buy the John Deere's and tractor supplies of the world. Uh, but what what else is out there? I mean, I, I visited you know places in the Middle East and South America that are not as blessed with right. the natural resources, be it the topsoil or the the water that we have, and they have to well, be much more resourceful with technology. That's right. It's it's hard to beat land. You know, when when it comes right back to it, you got to have the land. But technology is what's going to allow us to allow that land to feed this world, this growing world, and the growing demand. And, uh, you know, many different aspects of technology you can invest in. And whether it be equipment, whether it be computer programs, you know, technology, or water systems, like you say, drip irrigation. And that How has the thing. technology advanced over the past 10 years? What have we seen happen? Because oh, it's huge. There's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of a penguin mentality. Everybody yeah. wants to jump into something that's working, right? And right. so the innovation follows it. Right. And it, it's hard to keep up, quite frankly. And, you, and that's where it's good to have, like myself, have children working in your operation that are younger and, 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 and used to uh, high-tech things. If we were to isolate one crop, say corn, 
which has which has been a, a prism to see many different things over the past ten years. Be it biofuel, be it, be it food, be it grain for uh, cattle. How has the price? What has a bushel of corn increased over the past ten years, and how has your yield increased parallel to that? Over the past ten years, I would say the, the yield has probably increased thirty to forty percent. On what you could get from, say, an acre of, of, of soil for right, corn? Right, And that's been mostly done with technology and advancements in, in seed and, and products to put on the seed. To and help what it. is the price of corn, say, 10 years ago versus today? Um, well, today, you know, the markets are very fluid up and down. And I guess when you look over the last three years, we're at a low point yeah. by far. Uh, just because of an abundant crop being grown in this country this year. Um, the demand is still strong. The best thing for cheap prices is cheap prices. The cheaper it is, the faster you'll move it out of here mm-hmm. and get it back to a lower carryover But stock. just to illustrate versus the era of cheap food or the last time you remember, what was it? maybe over a 20-year period, just to, to, to give our listeners an yeah. illustration of how grain prices have increased? Well, you take you take prior to the run-up in, in the biofuels production and in, in primarily in ethanol production, you know, we were running along for 20-plus years at around $2 corn price. Right. I and mean, we pretty much pivoted. It. Yeah, it was it – was, we're pivoting between you know a little under two up to maybe two fifty, mm-hmm. and it was like that from the seventies all through um, more or less you know all the way up to even as late as maybe two thousand five right, right. two thousand six even, right. and then we had a, a major repricing of the asset um, repricing of the commodity uh, circa oh six oh seven oh eight time frame, and that was primarily due to the the bid coming in from the from the biofuels portion of the market, right? So you now today on gross terms, you're using about a third of the crop for ethanol production. And the motivation mm-hmm. being the price went from two two fifty to what? As a high as a high, you know, we've been up to eight bucks wow. per bushel, mm-hmm. right? I mean now what Kevin, what was the price last week? Uh, about three seventy five. Three seventy five, yeah. yeah. So is this Kevin where you're looking around as a value investor sinking that it's only a matter of time that uh, this this equilibrates and you want to be buying at a low. Yeah, that's right. And stitching up more fields with corn. That's yeah. correct. And then and then be ready to to be there when the market's back to its high. There's a lot of volatility. Yeah. Now hold that thought. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking the boom in agriculture and living off the fat of the land. Uh, stay with us. This program is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Hey, buy land. They're not making it anymore. That's a famous quote by Mark Twain. And he's so right, right? A century later and that we have a huge run-up in Agricultural land prices, specifically, according to the National Council of Real Estate Fiduciaries, farmland is up 12.5% a year over the past 20 years and 17.5% over the past 10 years. That compounds like crazy, Craig Shealy. It does. And in in that period, uh, somehow your resume was intercepted by an entrepreneur, someone who wanted to fund a a biofuel factory here in Virginia. How did that happen? And Tell us about your adventures slash misadventures in biofueling. Biofuels. So I came to Richmond in 2000 and I guess it was 2006, right? And um, we set about trying to figure out how to build a biofuel business, biofuel production capabilities here in the state of Virginia. 
And what we were trying to do was create a facility that could actually be supplied locally. And that's actually how Kevin and I got to know each other. And the conclusion that we came to is that the best opportunity was to try to build a facility that would be capable of processing uh, winter grains, and in particular barley. And so the idea was that we'd be able to process a grain that you know, Kevin and his compatriots didn't really have a, a much of a market for currently, but they had a, a decent amount of land that they were leaving fallow in the winter. And so this would help reduce runoff and give them another cash crop. And so we built a 65 million gallon per year facility down in Hopewell, Virginia. Uh, it was about a $200 million. And money was easy. Venture capital money was easy. And Well, I, I mean, I don't know about easy, but it was definitely available at that point in time. You know, sort of 06, 07, this was in the, the heart of the run-up in the biofuels production capabilities. And so... Um, and you're like, Kevin, I got a hot stock tip for you. Winter barley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it wasn't exactly like that. that we, you know, I went and, pre- and presented... Plastics. Pla- yeah, exactly. Uh, Mr. Robinson. Um, but... Uh, I went and, and presented at a local uh, grain, winter grain produ- or small grains production. Um, Here's a Microsoft executive yeah. presenting at a small grains convention. Well, it, it definitely, I definitely called upon my roots in South Carolina more so than my uh, experience at, at Microsoft. But it, you know, it did involve raising capital, manage a big project, which I had spent a good chunk of my career doing. So what were your assumptions and what went wrong? Well, I think our biggest assumption that was wrong was that we would have the continued regulatory support. And that really is what fell apart for us specifically. We got caught in the mix between cellulosic or some of the new technology guys and the old line corn guys, um, corn-based ethanol, I mean, uh, because our ultimate finished product had close to the uh, carbon footprint of cellulosic, but it was essentially using a derivative of corn-based ethanol production technology. And so um, the EPA ultimately kind of buried us in uh, red tape and never gave us the designation which said, yes, you're an advanced biofuel, which was really um, the designation that we needed to... Was there was there a price for crude oil or equivalent in gasoline where you were sustainable or profitable? Because we know that prices collapsed during the financial crisis, yeah. they fell from about $140 to $35. Correct. Oil. Yeah. That certainly had a role to play in it. But I think the more important issue was that we needed to have a premium or a slight premium uh, value for our finished product because of its low carbon footprint. And, you know, we petitioned the EPA to get that pathway approved in 2010, and they still haven't approved it here in 2014, still sitting in regulatory uh, purgatory. Now, uh, Megan, um, I look at the availability of fruits and vegetables as a father of two babies. I marvel at kind of – we didn't have Haas avocados growing up, really. It was, a, it was a novelty you might find at some gourmet store somewhere that brings them in from California. Now we have them year-round, right? They bring them from Mexico. They bring them from Ecuador, right? Equator and, and climate be damned. Like well, there's mm-hmm. such aggressive global sourcing that you can get pretty much anything at any time of year. Like, forget – about just mangoes, like you get champagne mangoes, Atalfo mangoes, right? And that then becomes the industry standard and Whole Foods orders boxes and boxes of it. Well, how is, I mean, is that, is that kind of cutting both ways at the same time you have this desire for us to increase yields as kind of the breadbasket of the world? And then all of our customers seem to want to crave these staples that are falling in price that have to be available 365 days. How does that work? Well, 
people want their avocados. <laughs> That's, you know, <laughs> it, it's all based on demand, you know, and there's a little bit of a controversy, especially when you're in a natural market, you know, and you focus on seasonal. And people are thinking, you know, they come in your store thinking you're, they're going to find seasonal and local and they find avocados from exactly where you're saying, you know, and it's a little bit of a controversy. Also, if you don't have those things, then people will go elsewhere. So there's a really a fine line where you have to make the decision whether it's worth it to bring in certain things and just find the best that you can find um, that meet your standards or not have them at all. What is the big corporate player that chiefly moves the needle on uh, supply demand in the United States? Is it a Walmart? Is it a Kroger? Is it a McDonald's? In your experience, what are these farmers most kind of terrified of or bow down before the influence of? I would say Walmart is a huge contender right now, and especially because they're moving into the organic market. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Um, but it kind of started with the Stonyfield Farms. You know, they started bringing in the, the Stonyfield Farms yogurt, which is a— Yo, baby. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you like that? <laughs> My baby does. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, Walmart is definitely one to look out for. I mean, they, they hold the majority— there's just a lot of people who shop there and will continue to shop there specifically if they offer these more organic choices. So I would say that the farmers, the small farmers particularly, if they do decide that they want to deal with Walmart, are going to have to make that choice and really ramp up production and make that choice whether they want to have their guidelines go basically upon what Walmart wants. Um, but that would that would be the hugest contender. So how does that work, Farmer Kevin? Are you are you scaling up and buying land to be uh, more robust in your negotiating leverage with the WalMarts and Krogers and Giant Foods of the world? Who do you primarily want to sell to or do sell to? No, that's not really our our market. We would be more supplying like the Purdue's, the Tyson Food uh, for chicken feed for chicken feed. Yeah, the Smithfield. For hog production, uh, some large-scale dairy farms, things like that, and also ethanol plants mm-hmm. as well. Uh, we're sending corn today to the ethanol plant in Hopewell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did last week. We sent a lot of corn last week to a Tyson's feed mill, which is feeding you know thousands of chickens here in Virginia. Do you, do you feel any pangs of kind of worry or guilt or sustainability of redirecting a portion to ethanol of no. corn specifically? Something that's so valued for feed and not really it's water intensive. I, I know that this country and this world is capable of producing it. If the value is there, we can produce it. Yeah. And also, once corn goes to an ethanol plant and the ethanol is extracted, you still have the feed product left over. Right. It's not like that feed goes away. You're actually making the corn much more efficient in its use then you are just taking corn and feeding it to livestock direct. Now, is corn-based ethanol, Craig Shealy, sustainable without aggressive government intervention or subsidies? Uh, absolutely. Um, if you look at where the market is today and where the regulatory environment is today, there's there's no subsidy left, really, to speak of at all. I mean, the only thing that in theory is still supporting an ethanol market is the uh, renewable fuel standard, which is a mandate of, of total biofuels usage. Uh, but the truth is we, we uh, surpassed, uh, at least in corn ethanol production, we surpassed the production capacity of that you know, some years ago. 
Uh, and I would I would tell you that pretty vehemently that even without that mandate, if you get back to that sort of carbohydrate versus hydrocarbon disconnect in the market that existed circa, you know, 2005, you know, we would have had many billions of gallons of ethanol produced in this country uh, even without any type of government intervention because the gap in value between liquid fuels and in particular the octane and oxygenate value of ethanol is way in excess of uh, where corn was priced, certainly at that time, and also now. Mm -hmm. So despite the strong bid on corn uh, from ethanol, we've got, you know, we've managed to increase production. This year, we're going to have a huge excess production. That's why corn is 375, as as Kevin was referencing earlier, um, which is pretty low. That's that's close to, if not below, the production cost on yeah. most acres in, yes. in across the country, including the mid, some of the most productive acres in the Midwest. And, you know, the reason that's happening is is that farmers like Kevin and others have been able to increase their production efficiently and, and can and can overproduce. Now, straight up question, Kevin, you have to increasingly look at your your portfolio of crops as an investor, as a value minded person. What do I what do I cut out of this? What do I swap out of? What do I liquidate so that I could get a better return on invested capital? Right? This is not a hokey farmer with straw in his mouth sitting like on the stoop outside the barn, right? You're actually hugely mechanized, you invest in technology, you want your children to bring uh, their kind of mind share into this. So if you had to be a critic of agriculture writ large in the United States, what are certain things we shouldn't be growing? Or kind of, you know what, I'm going to call it a day, i.e., do we not have a comparative advantage in sugar? Should we be importing that from Brazil or Cuba when Cuba opens up? Are there other things that we, you know, because land is so scarce and so valuable and you're so yield-minded that we have no business trying to be pretty with certain crops? What are those kinds of crops? I don't know that I would agree that there are a lot of crops like that. I, I, again, I think when the market dictates what it wants, we grow what the market wants. But in terms of globalization, in that it's it's never been as easy to bring things from overseas and that the infrastructure is there, the capability um, you know, Cuba keeps telling us it could supply us with all of our sugar needs if we just <laughs> lay down everything That's in true, Florida and, and Louisiana. And of course, sugar is protected by a price floor in Congress. So are there are there certain things out there that frustrate you as a taxpayer? Because after all, a tremendous amount of subsidies go into this. Tremendous amount of subsidies go into... In every the, farm bill, there are certain things are kind of picked as national champion crops and others others are kind of neglected. Are, yeah. Is there well, something that we should be growing the, the, intensely the, as a comparative advantage? The last farm bill eliminated most subsidies to grain, yeah. to any type of grain. The right. uh, majority of the farm bill anymore is funding the food stamp program. Right. That's where a lot of that money's going. And you have to have that which I don't like this, you have to have the food stamp program tied to the farm bill to get a farm bill because you don't have enough rural congressmen to vote for a farm bill alone if you don't tie it to something that the congressmen in cities and urban areas will vote for. Well, now, and let's be clear. Let's be clear about what grain subsidies, quote unquote, really are in those farm bills. They're really, it's really crop insurance subsidies, yes. just to be specific. It's not, I mean, it's a lovely sort of gloss over where people like to talk about grain being subsidized. All that's being subsidized is the it crop insurance so that so that Kevin can afford to buy crop insurance in case he has a major crop failure. Exactly. When you when you're spending five to six hundred dollars an acre to plant a crop and you have thousands of acres and then you have a natural disaster like zero rain or 
temperatures in excess of 100 for a month. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to have some way to recover right. or, which you, speaks, won't, or you, which, won't be a, you won't be a solid business. Well, right. Kevin, which speaks to the risks of investing in farmland in this right. case. It's not all hunky-dory despite the fact That's that there correct. haven't been That's any right. down years over the past 10 years. Do you perceive bubbly conditions in certain markets? We we have this stat that the price-earnings ratio, if you will, for farmland right now is uh, almost 35 compared with a, a half-century average of, of – 15 to 20. Yeah. So are you trying to be kind of more long, cheaper or neglected markets and selling more expensive properties? No, no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, are you just laid back with your mind on your money and your money on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm just trying to maintain stability, you know, and, and you have to take what comes to you every day. Here in Virginia, when you have real estate you have options that come up that are not necessarily ag options sometimes, and you have to consider that. There are tools here in Virginia that we have to use to take the value out of that land sometimes and offset it with tax credits and things mm. to uh, be able to maintain some good productive farmland in a uh, close to an urban setting. So how long before we do see actual mom-and-pop investors get into the farmland business? Because what's inconceivable now in terms of the ETFs, exchange-traded funds we have that were absolutely inconceivable as recently as five years ago are very real. Farmland is a difficult, illiquid investment. You it can't is. really buy it in odd lots. Some farmers are either selling everything or nothing. Uh, for, for all the great research that this hedge fund put out, this $130 billion hedge fund, yeah. uh, actually farmland is only just 1% held by institutional investors. Nice. And that's bound to grow. So what kind of prophecy do you see, Craig? Well, I mean, uh, you know, if I've learned anything in the commodity business, it's that uh, you don't want to prophesy about anything, <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to predict the future. But what I would say is that it, the reality of it is um, farmland is a very difficult asset for a small investor to get involved with. I mean, because, you know, you really have to buy at enough scale to where it makes sense for uh, a strong operator like Kevin to, to come in and lease it from you. He, he doesn't want to go lease a two-acre field. You know, he doesn't want to go lease a five-acre field. He wants to lease a 50-acre field or a 100-acre field, exactly. right? Because right. that's not – because he's got to move – It's not going to move the needle for him. Yeah, well, right. it's, it's also you're, – you're actually – you know, he's got to mobilize uh, tractors, planting equipment, potentially irrigation, you know, and then he's got to harvest it, right? So that's – you can't offer that asset to somebody at a really small scale. Now, sure. you, what you can do at a small scale is what Megan does. And and that is more exactly. specialty, you know, fruit and vegetable production, which is a which is a different way to that potentially smaller investors could go. Perfect, direct. perfect segue. And to close this episode, Megan, I'm gonna put you on the spot. <laughs> Having heard all this and everything that you do in the course of a work week at your market, Elwood Thompson's, what is the one crop I need to invest in? What is the one thing I need to be growing? Is it a telfo mangoes? Is it a certain cherry? Is it a certain herb? One thing that I must invest in and our listeners? Heirloom. Heirloom seeds, heirloom produce, tomatoes. Um, I would I would focus more on that rather than one particular crop um, and focus more on um, very unique varieties because that's where we see the trend. And you pay top dollar for those? Yes, you do. Hey, Robin, there's a really good herb in Colorado you might want to consider. Oh, <laughs> you have to go there. <laughs> it's only a matter of time, Farmer Kevin, until those guys come knocking on your door, too. Yeah, promise <laughs> so. Thank you. Thank you so much. We were talking all things farming and uh, the new investing reality of looking at farmland as a, uh, as a compelling asset class. 
Thank you, Craig Shealy, the accidental banker. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Farmer Kevin Angle. Thank you for having me here. Megan Jones, buyer for Elwood Thompson's. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Our program was recorded at Audio Image Recording in Richmond, Virginia. Our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website at fulldiscloseradio.com and on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad. <laughs>